Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to live grief support, podcast stickers, giveaways, and so much more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to Rabbi Ann Brenner, who is celebrating the 25th anniversary edition of her book, Morning and Mitzvah. We're connecting the dots between Jewish rituals, God, and grief. Also on the show today, I'm talking about the powerful language change that comes with death. The shift from is to was. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to Coming Back. Thank you so much for joining me here today. A big thank you to all of you, too, that joined me for my monthly live Google Hangout this past Monday. I am always so honored to hold space for you for a full hour every month to answer your questions and talk about grief. This month, we talked about pet loss, breakups, books we love, and how love is received by people who are dying. Next month's hangout is Monday, February 25th. If you'd like to join me, plus a bunch of other listeners of the show, all you have to do is head to patreon.com slash Shelby and pledge $1 or more. So just $1 gets you the link every month to join me and the listeners of this show live and ask your questions on grief, loss and coming back live for a full hour. And of course, you can always find this link to pledge in the show notes. All right, so I'm going to start with a story and then go to the top of the show. Uh, This past Sunday, Grave Growers, I went to see a show by myself. This is something I absolutely love to do, have loved more. As I've gotten older, I go see movies, shows, Broadway plays, totally solo, by myself. It's kind of like taking my inner child on a date. Uh, And also it has the perks of not being required to keep tabs on whether the human who is with me is also having a good time. So I get to have that experience and those memories all to myself. And it feels really special when I get to do stuff like that. So this past Sunday, I saw a production at a theater in downtown Chicago. And on my way out of the theater, there's a group of about five or six ladies looking around with a phone in their hands. And I thought they might need directions. A lot of theater goers are new in town or from the suburbs. They don't travel around uh, the inner bits of Chicago a lot. So I said, hey, can I help you with something? And one woman replied, oh my gosh, yes. Could you please take our picture with the theater sign in it? And of course, I said yes, as any good Midwesterner does. I'm from the South, but I've lived here long enough that I embrace giving directions and taking pictures at all times. And while I was taking their picture, I dropped the line that I use when I wait tables too, when a table asks me to take their picture. I said, don't worry, you're in great hands. My mom is a scrapbooker. They all laughed, thought that was really funny, uh, and went on their way with new memories in hand is. My mom is a scrapbooker. As if she's still alive. A few months ago, one of my co-workers and Patreon supporters asked me, she said, do you make a conscious decision to use is or was in reference to your mom? I think it'd be really neat to hear you do a show like that. So this is that show, Grief Growers, this is that top of the show, but I don't know that I have a concrete answer for her, or for you. To be perfectly honest, I don't remember the first time I switched from is to was after my mom died. On paper, it was definitely in her obituary, which my dad, my sister, and I all co-wrote the evening of her death at our kitchen table. But verbally, 
God, of all the memories I have surrounding my mom's death and wake and memorial, changing my verbiage to was is regrettably not one of them. That's not a memory that I have really locked in on or honed in on in my grief. I don't remember the first time I started talking about my mom in the past tense. Time is such a weird thing in grief. One of my favorite fellow podcasters, Darwin Dave, over on Dealing With My Grief, calls time a four-letter word, which always makes me laugh. But something else is weird in grief, too, and that is language. How we talk about death, the words we use to build our story of grief. And I've kind of touched on this before in terms of people refusing to say the word death, instead using things like passed on or went to sleep or slipped away, or jokingly I saw in the Golden Girls bought the farm. But this small, 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 super significant switch of tense from my mom is alive to my mom was alive. Like, I get, I get chills. Like, wow. Like, that is a very, very powerful and subtle change that all of us are left to weigh after somebody that we love dies. And I'm not crazy for using both tenses. You guys all know that I'm not crazy by now. I actively use both the present tense and the past tense to talk about my mom. Sometimes it depends on who I'm talking to, and I've seen this in some other grief spaces as well. So if it's a total stranger, I'll pretend my mom's alive so I don't have to get into the whole story or because I know I'll never have to see this person again. Um, if it's friends or coworkers or family, I will use was, unless something spiritual or intuitive is coming through me at the moment, and then I'll switch to is, because when that happens, it feels like uh, my mom is still in the room with me or with us or that she's speaking to us. And to be perfectly honest, sometimes grief growers, I'll just forget. <laughs> I will slip up on the fact that my mother is dead. Just like I forget what day of the week it is, I will forget that my mom died. And I'll say is for a whole day in relation to her. And sometimes it's just as simple and careless and thoughtless as that. So there's really no like formula to it for me. But what I want to kind of crack into this week, grief growers, is if this is significant to you. So for as important as language is to me, writing, you know, scripts for the podcast, the blogs I do on Medium, composing the works that I bring you every single week on Instagram and Facebook and, and everywhere I do grief work, for as important as language is to me, I kind of feel like this tiny bit of pressure to be more truthful or more deliberate with my words about the living or dead state of my mom. Uh, but at the same time, I know that my casual flip-flopping between is and was is this playful reminder to me that the veil between life and death is very, very fluid, at least in my own personal experience. Because oftentimes I feel like my mom is just as alive today in my heart and my spirit as she was when she was literally alive on the planet. I know her physical presence is obviously very, very different, but but spirit-wise, I can summon her in the blink of an eye. I know what she would say if she were here. I know what she would think about this situation in my life or the other. So why shouldn't I say she is alive? But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I want to start a conversation this week, grief growers. If you'd like to email me with your thoughts on the subtle, significant shift between is and was in regards to death, you can always reach me at Shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. If you're a member of my private Facebook group, The Grief Growers Garden, I'm also going to start a post there about this top of the show theme this week and see what happens. I want to see what you guys have to say. Maybe some of you are more strict about it than I am. Maybe some of you avoid saying is or was or referring to tenses at all when it comes to your loved ones. I've seen that before. And maybe this is the first time some of you have ever given thought to it, to past and present tense and grief. And that's okay. It's something worth thinking about. Thank you so much to my dear friend Safina for posing this question this week. I am going to dearly miss you as you move to Hawaii. And uh, best wishes from all of us here on coming back. Thank you for your support of the show. Next up, my conversation with Rabbi Ann Brenner, who's connecting the dots between Jewish rituals, psychology, religion, and grief. But first, a quick break. 
One of the most helpful things I've found in my loss, grief growers, is a witness to my journey. Beyond feeling that I'm not alone, although that's extremely helpful in the aftermath of loss, I feel like by sharing my story with someone else, I have a sounding board, a guide, and someone who's just a little bit farther ahead on the road than I am. There is camaraderie and small growing strength and confidence in finding a grief coach who can companion you, walk alongside you, and you're coming back. I want to be the person to hold this space for you on a one-on-one level. If you're looking for more focused attention on your heart, whether you're coping with death, divorce, diagnosis, or something else, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching to receive more information about the types of grief coaching I offer and to fill out an interest form. That's shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. I'm here to be your companion, toolbox, and shoulder in grief. You can also find a link in the show notes. Anne Brenner, LCSW, is the author of Mourning and Mitzvah, a guided journal for walking the mourner's path through grief to healing, first published in 1993, and now revised and expanded and published as a 25th anniversary edition from Turner Publishing. An ordained rabbi, psychotherapist, and spiritual guide who serves on the board of the Aleph Alliance for Jewish Renewal, Rabbi Brenner takes the hand of modern mourners to gently guide them through the mourning process. With Mourning and Mitzvah, Rabbi Ann Brenner offers real solutions for healing. While still in her early 20s, losses included the suicide of her mother, followed just three months later by the death of her 19-year-old sister in a car accident, her only sibling. What began with the personal journey of her own struggle for healing became a best-selling book which reefs her own journey and those of many whom she has nurtured into the template provided by ancient Jewish wisdom. She is a speaker and writer whose book has helped thousands heal. Morning and Mitzvah is available at fine bookstores and online outlets everywhere. Well, Rabbi Brenner, thank you so much for coming on Coming Back today to talk about where Judaism and psychology and grief all intersect. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, and I'm so appreciative of what you do. It makes such a difference for people who are grieving, uh, because people who are grieving really need a place to go. I want to go ahead and jump right into your lost story and kind of what it was that got you started in doing this work. Well, I don't know that I had a choice. My life pretty much uh, had the name grief on it. Uh, when I was three months old, my natural father died in a in a an accident uh, uh, having to do with uh, surgery that probably shouldn't have been done. I was, as I said, three months old. And then my mother committed suicide when I was 24. And three months after that, my sister was killed in a car accident. So I spent a lot of time, I was 24 years old when I lost my mother and sister, and I spent a lot of time trying to be like other people who were 24 years old, but I was failing miserably. And at some point, it occurred to me that maybe my life was trying to teach me something. And so I did whatever I could to, uh, to see what, what grief was about, what I needed to learn, and I have to say that as a result of it, I not only wrote a book, but I feel that I've come into a very different understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to be a spiritual person, what it means to be a religious person. And I won't say that I'm grateful for what happened to me. I would give anything to have them back, but uh, I feel that I've led a better life because of it. I like that you say that because that's something that's so... Hmm, how do I phrase that? This is like what the world wants us to say is that I'm grateful that I had this experience or that I'm so, you know, happy I learned from it or this something about the the positive only spin of the transformational power of grief. The world is often insistent that we learn something from our losses and do something productive and uh make ourselves happy that we went through it. So I'm really glad that you expressed this uh emotion of, no, I'm not really grateful. I wish I had them back every single day. And uh, I empathize with you in this need to 
understand what I'm going through, especially being in your 20s. Listeners of the show know that I lost my mom when I was 21 and learned uh, to lean on the stories of others via books and podcasts and all these free resources to to sort of construct a framework for me. Um, I want to know more about your family and your upbringing, kind of what got you started connecting the dots between religion and psychology and grief altogether? Well, it was a long journey. It didn't go so easily. Um, In the beginning, as I said, I tried to be like other people my age and wasn't able to do it. I finally retreated to a cabin in Mendocino County in Northern California. And I gardened and I exercised. I did a lot of yoga. And I began to write in my journal and try to just by my own bootstraps pull myself up. And then um, I decided, uh, well, actually, it was sort of connected with my getting married. When I was getting married, I married someone who was also Jewish, and I began to look into what a Jewish wedding would be. And then I became more and more interested in Judaism. And I found out that, um, that the Jewish morning rituals, if they had been observed, would have guided me through loss in a way that would have would have taken me to the kind of healing that I had to do all by myself, uh, pulling myself up through my own bootstraps. And, uh, and so I began to learn more and more about Judaism and the Jewish morning rituals. The Jewish morning rituals are incredibly wise, and they carry people from the very beginning of loss, acknowledging all of the emotions, making certain that the community surrounds someone who is grieving, making sure that they get their needs met and that they have permission to feel whatever they need to feel. There's no denial of death in Judaism. And um, we, we, we hear the sound of earth on the casket as people are buried we we the community everybody lines up and helps to bury the the person who died uh we don't embalm people we really have a sense of um people need to return to the earth just as just as they are and um then then the mourners go to their home and the community brings them food and stands around them and and they um they, the community is actually encouraged to be very quiet and allow the mourner to have the space that they need while they also know that they're being supported at, all the, at the whole time. Um, it's very interesting that in, the, in the, uh, the blessing that is given to mourners, the name of God that is used in Judaism, we have about 71 different names for God. And the name of God when we're blessing mourners is Hamakom, which actually means the place. And when I said earlier how grateful I am that you created a place for mourners, it's in some ways saying that you're creating a holy place. Because the blessing, there's so many words in Judaism for God, as I said, but the fact that the word for God for mourners is the place indicates to me, and I think to others as well, that we don't want to prescribe how mourners should feel. We want to just create something around them that helps them to feel safe uh, so that they can feel whatever they need to feel, always supported by community always taken care of, always under the watchful eye of those who care for them um, so that they can walk through this very difficult path. I'm getting chills as you're saying that because there's a few other podcasts I listen to, uh, including the Robcast, which is a Christian-leaning podcast, but his intense study of the Bible and the Hebrew language as well, he com- he displays a lot of different words for God. And you said the number was 71? Yeah, that's, uh, well, they say there's 71 faces of God, although that isn't really true because we believe that everyone is a face of God. Uh, So, um, so there's really an infinite number of faces of God. Um, Whenever I 
uh, approach a mourner or really anybody who I'm working with in any kind of capacity to try to help them or comfort them, I always sort of tell myself a, a face of God is approaching you. Uh, act appropriately and and try to try to really see the holiness that they're carrying uh, just by virtue of being a human being. What happens to grief when we choose to view it through this this holy lens? Well, I think that by Allowing grief to be holy, and that's one of the things that I've really tried to do in my book, is to recast the various stages of grief that people go through as holy spaces um, so that they will have the sense that this is not just something they have to get through uh, because it's a terrible thing, but that each of these each of these places, and I use the word place again, is uh, that that mourners have to experience tells them something profound about what it means to be a human being, something profound about what ha- what it means to live on a planet where living things die. So much in our culture is about denying that truth, denying the fact that living things die, and we are in a lot of trouble as a result of that because we've been dumping things into our oceans and our rivers and uh, we've been polluting our earth and building tall buildings as if they would last forever. And um, in it is just this basic denial that mourners really know, which is that life is like a roller coaster. There are ups and there are downs, and we have to treasure each moment. We have to treasure life and really respect it and not just think that we have the capacity to live forever. And with that, uh, when we come to terms with the fact that we're finite beings on this planet, we um, we begin to take our lives m- much more seriously. Uh, we cherish each day, and we know that we're responsible for our actions and we're responsible for our planet. I think that when we fully grieve, we learn compassion for ourselves, we learn compassion for others, and um, and we we ultimately come to take responsibility for making sure that the world is a place of compassion. In, um, in Judaism, there's a prayer that we say, and we usually say it at funerals and we say it at memorial services. It's a prayer that um, asks that uh, people who have died, that their souls be gathered under the wings of the Shekhinah, which is another name for God. The prayer is called El Male Rachamim, which means God filled with compassion. And the word for compassion in Hebrew has the same root as the word for womb. So the sense that we get is that when a soul dies, when a soul leaves the body, it should be gathered up into the womb of holiness. And this tells us that life is a journey from womb to womb. And that in between, there's the hope that we can stay aligned with this path of compassion. And I think that when we face the fact that we're finite, when we are there for people who are grieving, we begin to understand um, uh, this, this understanding of compassion. We begin to embrace compassion. I have this sense that if people would fully grieve, they would come to a place of compassion, and we would have a lot less war on our planet. I think that very often one of the first things that people can feel when they've gotten past the, the heavy weight of grief, the first thing that, that activates them is this feeling of anger. And my sense is that that anger is what ricochets all down the generations uh, so that people just keep 
acting out their anger instead of taking their grief to the fullness that it is and, and taking it through all of the stages that it needs to experience so that they can come to a place where they have compassion for the world, for God, for other people, and for themselves as well. That compassion, I think, could heal the world. I think that insight is right on. And I love your uh, your literary breakdown of life is womb to womb because also in my uh, in my own grief brain I heard that also as life is going from room to room like with hard <laughs> and and in the sense of like creating a place for grief creating space for grief where in essence giving it its own room um we're giving its own room. It has its own womb. Like all of these things are, are tying close together. Well, in my book, in my book, um, it, my book has just come out in a third 25th anniversary edition. And there's a lot more in it than it was, than, than was in the original edition uh, 25 years ago. And one of the things I've done is to look at the stages of grief that we classically uh, uh, speak of when we speak of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and a lot of the people who have followed her, and to look at them uh, through the metaphor of something that we call Sukkot. Uh, uh, Sukkot are these fragile dwellings uh, that we live in during uh, a holiday period um, in the fall, called also called Sukkot, um, and uh, they they are reminiscent of the tents in which people dwelled when 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 they lived when they journeyed from Egypt to the Promised Land. And what I like to say about those tents, um, those Sukkot is that we're commanded to dwell in them, but it's, it's just temporary. So by going in, I, going into each of these Sukkot, which I've, which I, which correspond with the different stages of grief, knowing that they're temporary, I'm hoping that people will take the time to learn what they can learn in each of those Sukkot. Now, there's an irony, um, in that this, time, uh, this week in the fall when we're living in these fragile uh, tents is also called, uh, it's called the holiday of Sukkot, but it's also called the time of our joy, Zman Simchatenu. So in, in essence, this I think is perhaps the most profound spiritual teaching is that we live in vulnerable, fragile tents and we must be happy. We must learn to be happy. And so that is the ultimate paradox, which I think we come to if we experience grief fully, if we live in all of these Sukkot, and if we experience uh, all the things that we need to experience, which just allows us to come to peace with loss, to come to peace that people we love are people that we were in conversation with, whether or not it was an easy or, or a difficult conversation, have left the planet, um, and that we need to find a life for ourselves without them. And if we can come to peace with that by feeling all the feelings that grievers, the people who grieve uh, need to feel, um, and and uh, then we can come to this place of we of making peace with the fact that we live in these fragile tents and um, we can still feel the awe and amazement uh, that, uh, that, that, that life is actually quite exquisite. I want to circle back to your own personal losses and kind of that lightning bolt moment when you started diving into Jewish mourning practices. What, exactly happened to your own griefs for your father or your mother or your sister or all three uh, when you discovered these rituals? Did you kind of recreate them for yourself? Or, you know, how did you find your own peace and that fragility after discovering the the structure and the holiness of these rituals? Well, I didn't discover them right away. Um, I had done a lot of 
work with, uh, as I said, with yoga and gardening and psychotherapy and a lot of dark, lonely nights. And, um, and then I discovered them many years later, and I began to look at the rituals and to try to mine them for what was psychologically sound in them. What was it? What were these rituals trying to do for people? And so my, in my book, what I do is I use the structure of the Jewish morning path, which, as I said, holds people very tight in the beginning. And then as time goes on, uh, Allow, uh, allows them to to not be held so tightly, um, and, but to uh, have places, have, again, this word place, during each year, even after the year of mourning, um, when uh, people are allowed to have the conversation again, when people, we have a number of, of memorial days every year. And each of those days, allows people to find where they were in those conversations because everybody dies in the middle of a conversation. And so the work that we have to do is find where was I in that conversation because if I don't find where I am in that conversation with the person who died, uh, then a part of me dies as well. So so you you asked me to be very specific about my own experience and I'll I'll tell you um, I was very lucky in that I I went um, I went back to Berkeley where I had been living before uh, I had had the losses. I, I I grew up in New Orleans and that's where my mother and sister died. Um, I went back to Berkeley. I did a lot of yoga, and one day I was doing um, the bridge. I was. Um, I, where you're you you're on your back and you push your hands and your feet up and you your body forms a bridge, and when I came down from that pose, I began to weep and weep and weep, and somehow some part of me instinctively began to chant the Shema, which is the basic prayer in Judaism, which basically says. Um, uh, um, Listen, Israel, and by Israel, they're, they're saying the name of the patriarch Israel, and therefore it's, it's almost like, listen, Anne, the Lord is one, or God is one. And I realized, as I had fought, come down from that position, I had felt this sense that curtains had been pulled away. And that the the curtains that separated the worlds of life and death were very permeable at that moment. And I felt that I hadn't really lost my mother and my sister. And I experienced in a very visceral way what I realized was what the Shema was all about and what Judaism is all about, is this sense that everything is connected and we don't lose that connection. So I was very lucky right after that to to meet someone named uh, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi, um, who was a rabbi who um, had come from Europe, uh, had, had narrowly, very narrowly escaped the Holocaust and was living in the United States. And I told him about my experience and he said, yes, that's exactly what the Shema is about. That oneness is a oneness that connects all people, all things, all worlds, both life and death. And that connection is really what God is all about. And so I was able to, uh, to, learn from that and at that that was really the moment where I began to once again explore Judaism and it made a great difference in my life and um and and from there I began as I said to really mine these rituals and try to understand them not just as something that we do because we're told to do them but as something that was kind of a proto psychological path that uh, that religion was uh, was really 
at least Judaism was really established as a way of helping people to grow, to connect with holiness, to seek justice, to make peace with the fact that we are finite creatures. And, and, and I began to, I was able to really spend the rest of, really the rest of my life. I've been trying to uh, let, to both explore it for myself and myself and share it with other people as well. I love that story so much. And this is the piece where I want to segue into what people can expect from Morning and Mitzvah, because from what I've read of it and what I've seen other reviewers say of it, it sounds like it's a mixture of both wisdom and exercises. So um, my book, which is called Morning and Mitzvah, a guided journal for walking the mourner's path through grief to healing, attempts to take people's hand and guide them on the path of grief. What I do is use the Jewish rituals as a template for creating exercises, writing exercises mostly, although there's meditations in there as well, and to ask people questions, give them an opportunity to explore different aspects of their grief, and give them an opportunity to feel. I try very hard to make people have a sense or to allow people to have a sense that I'm with them as they do this difficult work. And uh, to write, and, you know, I, I, I spoke earlier about the word for God in the mourner's blessing that, that Judaism used, is hamakom, which means the place. So I try to create places in which mourners can experience the fullness of their grief with the hope that the wisdom of this template that takes mourners from the moment of hearing a death, about a death, to through a whole year of grieving, to dealing with um, all of the different issues that might come up for them, I try to anticipate a lot of it, and I think I've done it. And then there's something in Judaism that I think is so incredibly wise um, in that we have these memorial services each year. There are four of them each year, and they correspond with different aspects of grief. So it makes it very clear to people that grief Grief doesn't just end. We wouldn't want it to end. It would mean that our relationship ended. And so I, I create and the Jewish rituals create places during the year where we can, again, show up, experience our grief again, and, and hopefully see how we've grown. What is our grief like now? How has it changed? How has our relationship with the person who's died changed? How, how are we different? And ironically or magically, how are they different? Because one of the hardest things that, that people have to do as in their lives as human beings is to go from having a physical relationship with someone who's gone to having a spiritual relationship with someone who's gone. And so what I try to do and what I think I, I really am, am just using the, the, the wisdom of the Jewish morning rituals to guide me is to try to create a place where people can make that transition from a physical relationship to a spiritual relationship. And I try to hold people's hands as they, as they make, that, make that transformation and come out the other side and figure out ways in which they memorialize people, they want to remember them, how they still experience them in their lives, how they can still have a conversation with them. All of that is there. 
I love this so much because I've never heard it phrased this way, the transition from a physical to a spiritual relationship. And there are a lot of growing pains that happen in that because in most cases, in the case of a death, it happens overnight. All of a sudden, they're here on the planet and then they're not. Well, that uh, transformation doesn't happen overnight. Of course, the, the loss happens overnight, but it takes a long time. And I think that in our culture, we're, we're, we're urged to just get over it and get back to normal. Well, it's a new normal. And part of the work of that new normal is finding a new relationship so we don't feel that we have that we have completely lost someone who who has died. I mean, people come to me and they talk about unfinished business or things they wish they'd said. We undervalue the imaginal world. In the imaginal world, these things can happen and they can have an impact on what we what we what, what the so-called real world. If I have a conversation with somebody who's who's dead in my imagination, that conversation will impact me and it will change me and a great deal of healing will come. But it takes a long time before we're willing to relinquish uh, the, the physical connection. I know people very often hold on to articles of clothing and they can still smell the person who died. Um, they wrap it around them. It's perfectly understandable and normal. It's very hard to surrender that physical connection. But once we do, it is just amazing the kind of healing that can happen. And I, in, in my book, I try to encourage people to do this work and also try to gently, gently create these places where they can do it so that it will not be such a traumatic experience. What's maybe like one or two of the biggest conversations you've had with your loved ones in a spiritual way? Well, you know, as I said, my mother committed suicide and it was so painful. And I had all kinds of feelings. Of course, I had a great deal of guilt. I had a great deal of anger. And I had to find a way to express those things. Um, I, let, I, let me talk a little bit about guilt, and then I want to come back to your question. Um, because I think that for a lot of people, um, the feeling of guilt is easier than the feeling of helplessness of recognizing that we really have no power over the great mysteries of life and death. If I could believe that I was responsible for my mother killing herself, I could believe that I mattered. I could believe that I could have made a difference in her life. So I held on to that guilt for a long time. People would rather feel guilty than feel that powerlessness, feel that completely, completely stand on the edge of the abyss for which we have no, no real answers. So by saying, uh, because I was dating who I was dating, because I didn't uh, fulfill certain expectations that she had of me, if only I had done this, if only I didn't. I mean, I hear it from people. I'm sure you hear it from people all the time. If only I hadn't left the room. If only I had seen another doctor. If only, you know, if only, if only. People say that so often. And they, it's a thought that they have, but then they begin to believe it. And they make it true as if it were true. Um, because it's so much easier. We have a saying in Judaism. It's from a Hasidic rabbi. Um, who lived, I think, in the in the 17th century, and he said, um, "Life is a narrow bridge, and the most important thing is not to be afraid." 
the truth is life is a narrow suspension bridge over a great abyss. And one of the most important things that we can learn from grieving fully is that we have no answers. And we must live with the great mystery and the great unknown. And to be able to come to a place where we can live with that great mystery, where we can recognize that we don't have answers, um, and to not be afraid, that is to have really come through grief uh, to a a very, very uh, high sense of what spirituality is all about. Many religions try to tell us, many fundamentalist religions try to tell us exactly what happens and where people go and uh, what happens after death. We don't know that. We don't know the answers to these things. We don't know why people die. We don't know really what it means to be human. You know, we have five senses, maybe six if we're really enlightened, maybe even seven um, if we're enlightened. There are probably so many other ways of perceiving reality that we don't even have access to. How can we really know the truth about God, about life, and, and about death? How can we even know what it fully means to be human? So to be able to come through that place um, that grief demands us to go to ask those difficult, difficult questions for which there really are no answers and to come to peace with that, uh, that is that is what the spiritual journey really is. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, said that there, that he said the spirituality on this side of complexity, the fundamentalist spirituality does not compare to the spirituality that can handle the great paradoxes of life and death. When we can hold what what, uh, Carl Jung called um, the tension of opposites, where we can hold that bad things happen to good people, that we don't have the answers for the great questions that we're always asking. Um, When we can hold that and still experience joy, we're able to come to a much higher understanding of spirituality. I once had a wonderful teacher, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Omerman, who, who lives up in Berkeley right now. And he used to say, everybody's always looking for the right answers, but what we need are better questions. And the best question of all is, what is the question for which my life is the answer? So the question for which my life is the answer, I think, is how does one deal with grief? My life gave me so much grief. So that was apparently what I was put on the earth to try to explore. This is the great question for which there's no answer. But asking the question has propelled me through life and given me, I think, a really wonderful spiritual connection to God, to the people that I've lost, to being a person on this planet. I think that's right on the mark. And I think it's such a neat reframing to ask ourselves, what are our lives here to answer, as opposed to us asking, why am I here? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's so powerful. Uh, Before we sign off for the evening, I want to ask you, Rabbi Brenner, where people can find Morning and Mitzvah as well as where they can find you. Well, Morning and Mitzvah is uh, available wherever books are sold. You can certainly get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I am on uh, Facebook. Um, I can be found on Twitter. I live in Los Angeles, but I work with people all over the world. Um, You have to remember that Brenner has one N, B-R-E-N-E-R, and um, Anne has an E on the end, and I'm not hard to find at all. I do want to say that um, the Jewish rituals are quite profound, 
And uh, I don't think, and I know for sure, that so many of the people that I have worked with and who have found the book meaningful are not necessarily Jewish. I think that grief is a universal experience, and I think that uh, these rituals help to frame it in a way that carries people very honestly through the roller coaster uh, that grief provides. And so I would encourage people to try to find uh, the book, and hopefully um, it will bring them some comfort. I have so loved this conversation today and the stories that you've shared, as well as defining words in new ways, like the word God. I I just think that's so incredibly cool and has given me a larger perspective, both on Judaism and on grief as well. Well, you know, um, the word for God in Judaism is a verb. That says it all, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love it so much. Rabbi Brenner, thank you so much for coming on Coming Back today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for creating this holy space for people. People really need a place where they can hear other people talk about grief. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so incredibly much to Rabbi Brenner for coming on Coming Back to talk about the link between Judaism, psychology, and grief, and to share with us the idea of God and grief as places we visit. Maybe not forever, but very, very importantly. Rabbi Brenner came back by writing her book Morning and Mitzvah, but also by retreating to a cabin and practicing yoga. You can find a link to Rabbi Brenner's book Morning and Mitzvah in the show notes. For grief support beyond this podcast, go to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia, where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and receive instant access to a monthly grief support hangout with me. Thank you so much to Julianne, Josh, and Sean for pledging this past week. I am so honored to have you on board as patrons of the show, and I look forward to seeing you in our next live event. You can also apply for private Greek coaching with me at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby for Scythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby for Scythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. 